Hamlet podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of our book club. Somehow I managed to schedule Shakespeare's two Greekest plays back to back, Troilus and Cressida and then Timon of Athens. If I was really thinking about it, I suppose I should have programmed these a little closer to A Midsummer Night's Dream to complete the set, but maybe that would have been going too far. Instead, we now find ourselves in the realm of Henry V, And the Greek connection here is that this is the only play in all of Shakespeare that actually has a chorus. Given that I'm currently working on a project that's all about Greek tragedy, I would love to be able to tell you that this play is inspired by Aeschylus or Euripides, but I'm afraid not. The chorus is most likely designed to be played by a single actor and owes very little to ancient Athens. Henry V is actually the last of Shakespeare's major history plays. Faced with the choice of whether to go through them all in the order we think he wrote them, or the order in which the stories actually unfold in history, I went for the latter. As such, we started with Richard II, and so Shakespeare's earlier histories, the various parts of Henry VI and the most infamous, Richard III, will come a little later. All eight of the plays are different from each other. We can really feel Shakespeare's imagination working constantly to keep his audience interested and surprised. Now, in Henry V, we come to one of the most famous kings in English history, Great Henry who won the Battle of Agincourt against all odds and inspired a terrific mythology of English kingship that still holds sway today. Indeed, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a rash of new productions of this play in the coming months and years. I have to confess, this play has always left me a little cold. Maybe because I'm Irish, I never had any particular feeling for the terrific national pride of Henry's world. I had to look up when St Crispin's Day even falls. You can mark your calendars for October the 25th. All of the great rallying and manoeuvring of the piece can be very effective and affecting, and we'll talk about key moments when they've been employed. But if you're not English, you might not immediately buy into it all. I was much more interested in the history happening at the same time as Shakespeare was writing the play in the late 1590s. Elizabeth was gearing up for the campaign in Ireland. So here we get a play about a spirited young man who has valiantly chosen to fly the English flag into a foreign territory with no guarantee of success. Right about the time when Elizabeth was sending Essex, her own spirited young man, into a different foreign territory. The Irish expedition was a fiasco. Perhaps not enough of Essex's soldiers saw the play before they headed off, but what was happening outside the theatre bore little relation to the exuberant historical recreations at the Globe. I think this kind of contradiction haunts the play too. It's full of moments that undermine and contradict the idea of Henry as this great and glorious king. He certainly has his moments, but Shakespeare has studded the fabric of the play with quite a few hints that maybe being a good king and a good person aren't quite the same thing. It begins with the aforementioned chorus, who invites us, the audience, to use our imaginations. It's a terrific piece of theatre, one of the most famous speeches Shakespeare ever wrote. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in, 
like hounds should famine, sword and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, and gentles all, the flat unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France, or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon, since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, and let us, ciphers to this great account, on your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies, whose high upreared and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Peace out our imperfections with your thoughts, into a thousand parts divide one man, and make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hoofs to the receiving earth, for tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass, for the which supply, admit me chorus to this history, who prologue like your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge our play. Several hundred years before Brecht invited audiences to question what they saw in the theatre and to use their imaginations in a different way, Shakespeare apologises for the simplicity of his resources and invites the audience to see Henry and Agincourt and to piece out our imperfections with your thoughts. It's wonderful, and it's wonderful that we have a piece of text that gives us this insight into how Shakespeare imagined the minds of his audience. But... The demands of this play aren't particularly greater than any of his others. We've already had battles in most of the other histories, presumably staged with the same resources by the same company of actors. What's exciting now is that he's acknowledging the work that the audience has to do. He's insisting that there's a leap to be made that if we want to see this mythical King Henry the Great, we have to do some of the work. The chorus appears throughout the play. Unlike the prologue of Romeo and Juliet, which might have had more to say if that story didn't move at such a breakneck speed, in Henry's play we get several updates, often allowing us to change location or letting time pass, as he says it will. At the start of Act 5, we get a very complicated journey. After the battles lost and won, Henry's journey back to London is described in detail, only for him to return to France to negotiate the ending with the king and to woo his daughter. We never get a sense that this chorus is anything other than a huge fan of Henry. A part of me would love to take the Brechtian element a step further and have the actor playing Henry really engage the audience and play the chorus too. I'm not sure it would work entirely, but this idea has certainly enlivened my reading of the play this week. If Henry was the chorus, we'd see quite clearly why the speeches are all so enthusiastic about his exploits and maybe understand a little more about how there's a bit of a distance between what the chorus describes and what the action shows us. For example, this now is from the chorus prologue to Act 4, and it's just the night before Agincourt. Oh, now who will behold the royal captain of this ruined band, walking from watch to watch, from tent to tent? Let him cry praise and glory on his head, 
for forth he goes and visits all his host, bids them good morrow with a modest smile, and calls them brothers, friends, and countrymen. Upon his royal face there is no note how dread an army hath enrounded him, nor doth he dedicate one jot of colour unto the weary and all-watched night, but freshly looks and overbears a taint with cheerful semblance and sweet majesty, that every wretch, pining and pale before, beholding him, plucks comfort from his looks. A largesse universal, like the sun, his liberal eye doth give to every one, thawing cold fear, that mean and gentle all, behold, as may unworthiness define, a little touch of Harry in the night. Now, maybe we're supposed to think that Henry has been doing this all evening already, going through his men and inspiring them by sheer proximity to his royal greatness. He's like the sun. In the scene that follows, he disguises himself and tries to learn whether his men are loyal to him at all. He does manage to hear what he wants to hear, but this little touch of Harry in the night is quite sinister. Now that he's the king, he's moving further and further away from the common touch he seemed to have when he was cavorting with his pals in Eastcheap. This disguised king, trying to catch out his subjects, is reminiscent of that chilling glimpse we got in the first part of Henry IV, when Hal begins his soliloquy, I know you all. It's only a glimpse back then, but we see in that moment that he's a man who will do what he has to do when the time is right, for good or for ill. Machiavelli wrote The Prince a good few years after Henry died, but Shakespeare's version of him certainly lives up to that handbook's advice that a leader needs to be a fox and a lion. At other moments in the play, there are some flashes of great cruelty from Henry. He has the prisoners executed, Bardolph is likewise hanged, and indeed, the threats that he promises to the people of Harfleur are really quite shocking too. Meanwhile, speaking of Eastcheap, there's a major difference between this play and the two that precede it. We no longer have Falstaff to banter with the younger man, not since the absolute rejection at the end of Henry IV Part Two. It's telling that there's no room for Falstaff in the play that bears the name of Henry V. Once he became that king with that name, there was no room for Falstaff in his world. The older man does die in this play, but we only hear about his death from Mistress Quickly. The other denizens of the Boar's Head Tavern do appear, but as William Hazlitt described them, without Falstaff they are like planets without a sun to orbit. Without Falstaff to play with, and against, we only see the serious, earnest side of Henry in this play. There's nobody to make him laugh, or take himself less seriously, and so we only get the performance of serious, heroic, kingly Henry. I'm particularly interested in the way that Henry is likened to Alexander the Great. Henry himself mentions the Greek commander in his great speech, but later on we get what appears to be a comical juxtaposition of Henry and Alexander from the Welsh captain Fluellen. The Welshman draws a parallel between Alexander from Macedon and Henry from Monmouth. At length he describes the strengths and weaknesses of the characters of both men, but dwells particularly on how Alexander killed his friend Clytus, and Harry Monmouth, known to everyone but a Welshman as King Henry V, turned away the fat knight with the great belly doublet. Lest Fluellen appear too all-knowing, Shakespeare has him forget that fat knight's name, but he's reminded. 
It is, of course, Sir John Falstaff. I love this little moment because it encapsulates for me what is most difficult about this play. In order for him to become this great king, and the play is incessant in its insistence that he is a great king, a star of England, no less, in order for him to do so, he has to kill his friend. It's chilling. At Harfleur, earlier in the play, like I mentioned, Henry threatens untold savagery on the place if they don't yield to him and open up their gates. He makes a comparison with King Herod from the Bible and the slaughter of the innocents, and he's entirely prepared to massacre them if they resist. But by the end of the play, we've been reminded that this man was prepared not only to slaughter his enemies, but also to kill his friends when they were no longer useful. But there is no question that Henry is a great leader. Another of Shakespeare's most famous speeches is his address before the battle. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand at tiptoe when the day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbours and say tomorrow is St Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget. Yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St Crispin's day. The Battle of Agincourt, fought on St Crispin's day, the 25th of October, 1415, remains one of the most impressive in history, and it is worth looking up. But all the stuff that Henry says and promises, not least that he will elevate the social status of those who are fighting with him, is unlikely to happen. It's impressive rhetoric, and the one time I saw it performed in an English theatre, there were people crying in the seats around me. It's the kind of thing you'd want your leader to be saying on the night before a battle, in which you are woefully outnumbered. We happy few, indeed, we band of brothers, even if we die, we will be remembered. That's surely all any of us really wants, and it's all they can expect this night. As it turns out, they have a spectacular victory, but the night before, memory is all they're really hoping for. Just while we're talking about battles, there's a lovely little bit of mockery that Shakespeare includes earlier in the play. The big scene at Harfleur, after all those threats, begins with another of Henry's famous rallying cries, once more onto the breach, dear friends, once more. You've definitely heard of it. The scene that follows is on another part of the battlefield, and we see Bardolph, Nim, Pistol, and others presumably being about as useful as they ever were in the East Cheap Tavern. Bardolph attempts his own rallying cry, 
but all he can manage is on, 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 on to the breach, to the breach. And we get an immediate sense of just how much of a difference there is between the tavern and the palace. Just as the chorus acknowledges that they can't quite fit the vasty fields of France on the platform of the globe stage, Shakespeare couldn't fit all of Henry's exploits into the one play. A great deal is left out, and after the Battle of Agincourt, we jump rather eagerly towards a conclusion. While the various treaties are being drawn up, we get to see the moment in which Henry, the soldier, not the lover, wooed his wife, Princess Catherine of France. As with so much else in the play, there's the story we see and the truth behind it. Henry can afford to be charming, or try to be, and make Catherine think her opinion of him matters, but at least some of the audience would have known that the deal was made and that she'd have very little say in the matter. Impressively, Shakespeare wrote all of her scenes in French. This play is actually quite outward-looking in its characterizations. We have the most proudly, gloriously Welsh character Shakespeare ever wrote, that's Captain Flewellen, as well as captains from Scotland and Ireland, all united for the kingdom. Catherine and her maid Alice speak French, but they try to learn a little English as well. Henry himself is of Welsh descent. One could almost be forgiven for wondering where the English people in this play might be hiding. King Henry V of England didn't live very long. He died at the age of 35, and all of the lands he won for England were gone soon after he died. The chorus ends the play with a description of what happened next. Henry VI, in infant bands crowned king of France and England, did this king succeed, whose state so many had the managing that they lost France and made his England bleed, which oft our stage hath shown, and for their sake, in your fair minds, let this acceptance take. At the very end of the play, Shakespeare acknowledges, hopefully, that his audience has already seen the company stage the Henry VI story quite a few times. Ironically, they are among his least well-known pieces nowadays, but rest assured, we will get to them in the coming weeks and months. Henry V has had quite an impressive film history. Laurence Olivier made a very popular film version at the height of World War II, and the patriotic flair of the play was particularly appreciated. In the 1980s, Kenneth Branagh made a far grittier version at a time when war and its ugliness were being questioned to a far greater extent. More recently, the play was filmed as the last part of the first series of The Hollow Crown, featuring Tom Hiddleston as the king. There's also a brilliant glimpse of the play on stage within the film Anonymous, which insists that the Earl of Oxford wrote all of these plays we love. The evocation of the power and excitement of the first performance of this version of the Henry V story is beautifully staged. Mark Rylance plays the chorus and Alex Hassel plays the king, a role he reprised for the Royal Shakespeare Company a few years later. I'm not going to recommend the film in its entirety, but certainly those little glimpses are absolutely wonderful. If you're a fan of Mr. Rylance, you can also find footage of his performance as King Henry at the Globe Theatre in the late 1990s on YouTube. It's a very interesting documentary that explains why the play was chosen to open the theatre and, like I said, has quite a good deal of footage in it as well. And a little word to the wise. 
if you want to spend time with Shakespeare's version of the life of Henry V, I can't really recommend the recent Netflix film The King. It's impressively shot, but frustratingly, it has decided to adapt Shakespeare to create an accessible version of the story. But it's not historical, and it's not dramatic, and it's certainly not Shakespeare. It's problematic in a great many ways, so don't say I didn't warn you. For next week, the moment has come to take a look at the play that features maybe my favourite character in all of Shakespeare. She is Beatrice, and the play is Much Ado About Nothing. I hope you have a good week ahead, I hope you enjoy reading it, and I'll speak to you next time.